verse number 34. And Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34, says this, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked them a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Amen. This is the word of the Lord this morning. You know, there are uh, people that say they don't want to be a Christian or be part of a church because Christianity is nothing more than a bunch of rules, a bunch of thou shalt not. You can't do this, you can't do that. Christians would never go here. Christians would never say this. Christians would never do this. And, and uh, there's no doubt that a lot of Christians have been that way over the years. And a lot of you here, and ourselves included, have been uh, with people that have been like that. You know, if you're a real Christian, you wouldn't do this or whatever else. And, and uh, we've heard those things before, and there is no doubt that this kind of an attitude has hurt and offended a lot of people and has driven them from the church. And it is true. Christians have turned Christianity into a set of rules. And this, you're a better Christian than I am, or I'm a better Christian than you are, I should say, because of what I do or don't do. And also it is true that the Old Testament has rules and regulations. Relations, okay? You understand that a lot of these rules, a lot of these guidelines, a lot of these laws weren't necessarily designed just to make your life miserable, but a lot of them had to do with either sanitary practices, which now we have a lot of guidelines and a lot of rules and regulations regarding that. Um, it had a lot to do with ordering and peace and society and whatever else like that. Yes, the Old Testament is full of a lot of rules and regulations. But really, if you want to be totally and perfectly honest, Christianity is really only a faith and a religion of two basic rules. And these two rules, I dare say, if we would follow, if we would observe, if we would actually heed these two rules, we would see Christianity in a way of revival and revolution like we have never seen before. Yes, there are a lot of things that the Bible tells us to do, but it's all summed up in these two basic rules which you read about this morning. Love God and love your neighbor. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And as we get into this text again, we see my first point, which is again an ongoing attempt to trap and to catch Jesus. An ongoing attempt. The ongoing attempt here in verses 34 and 35. Look at what those verses say. It says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. All right, that happened last week, if you remember. 
talked about that. The Sadducees came and said, there is no resurrection. The Bible does not, or the Old Testament does not talk about a resurrection. And Jesus said, you're wrong. You don't really know the scriptures, okay? And the Sadducees walked away, tail tucked between their legs, did not know what to do. And so the Pharisees, they get together again. Let's try this again. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question in order to test him. Like I said, I've labeled this point the ongoing attempt because here we are, our third week in the talking about this. If you watched the video uh, that we did on May 3rd, you saw where it was over the, the problem of taxes. Do I pay taxes to Caesar or do I not pay taxes to Caesar? Okay, last week, as I just mentioned, it was over the resurrection. Is there a resurrection or is there not? And here comes the third row, the third brigade, the third cavalry, whatever you want to call them. Okay, this is how we are going to trip him up. We are going to ask him about what the greatest commandment is. And so we have the ongoing attempt, and my second point is this, the question, the question that is used to set the trap. The question used to set the trap. Verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What is the great commandment? What is it? And of course, when you look at this, you automatically have to ask, well, why this Question, why is Jesus being asked about what the great commandment is? Why not ask something else? Why not get Jesus to fall in regards to something different than asking what the great commandment is? Well, there's a couple reasons. First, we know that in ancient Judaism and the time of Jesus, there was an ongoing debate among the Jewish legal experts as to what commandment is actually the greatest. There was an attempt to prioritize the, the greater commandments and the less greater commandments, the weighty commandments and the light commandments. You can see this in the very next chapter, which we won't get into probably till next spring or sometime like that. But, but in Matthew chapter 23, you see this very thing being addressed because Jesus looks at them in Matthew 23 and verse 23 and he says, Woe to you, scribes! And Pharisees, you're hypocrites. Why? Because you're tithing mint and dill and cumin and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. What's he saying to me? He's saying, look, you guys think it's so important to pay your tithes that you're willing to take the, the mint out of your garden." Okay, and make sure that 10% of it goes to God. The dill, the cumin, these little bitty spices, these little bitty plants, these herbs, whatever they're called, you are willing to divide even a tenth of them and you're missing the things that are very important like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Okay, so you see this ongoing debate about what is important and apparently these people that Jesus addresses thought that this tithing was so important. The rabbis here though divided the commandments of the law into the light and the weighty. That did not mean that some commandments were so slight that they could be neglected. No, these commandments were God's and they were to be treated with full seriousness. But obviously some commandments were more important than others. For instance, the command to 
not murder is more important than that which is prohibiting you boiling a baby goat, a kid, in its mother's milk, which Deuteronomy 14.21 tells us not to do. Okay, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament law that the rabbis found, and now they're debating which one really has the biggest priority. But it wasn't just to settle a debate. I mean, we do that all the time, right? We debate issues, and then we get somebody on our side and somebody on their side, and Mary and I will do that, and then one of the boys will walk in in our debate or argument, whatever we'll call it, and we'll say, you're on our side, right? And they'll look at us like, we ain't touching that with a 10-foot pole. Get out of here. (laughs) I just wanted something to eat, okay? That's all I came in the kitchen for. But here we are, we're, we're debating, but that's not just what it is. There's another reason, obviously, and that is, no matter what Jesus says, it's going to be a wrong answer. There is no objective yardstick for measuring one commandment against the other. And so no matter what Jesus says, obviously, about what the great commandment is, it is going to be wrong. Okay, so it's an effort, it's an attempt to get Jesus to fall into a trap and ultimately to trip Him up. You see, you can see the significance of the different laws of God in many places in the Old Testament, but let me just give you three examples here. The first one is the blaspheming or taking the name of God in vain. Leviticus 24, verses 10 to 14, we are told these words, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. So what did they do? They brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilamith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan, and they put him in custody till the will of God should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard them lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Taking the name of the Lord, blaspheming God, was worthy of death by stoning. But it's not just that. We are told in Numbers 15, about how someone breaks the Sabbath. And guess what happens to them? Numbers 15, verse 32, when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and to Aaron to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So man blasphemes against God. He curses the name of God and he is stoned to death. A man goes outside and gathers sticks on the Sabbath day and he is stoned to death. And then of course, My last example, Joshua chapter 7, the story of Achan, the man who caused Israel to fall at the hands of Ai after they had defeated Jericho and knocked the walls of Jericho down. We are told, of course, about Achan. He had stolen stuff. Chapter verse 19 of chapter 7 of Joshua says, And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Don't hide it from me. Make an answer, Joshua. Truly I have sinned against the God of Israel. This is what I did. I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Shinar. 
I saw 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. And notice I coveted them and I took them. And notice what happens to him in that chapter. He is ultimately stoned for his sin. Why? Because he coveted and he stole. You see, the point is this. And something that we should remember as people is that there is no one who is free from committing sin and violating and breaking the law of God. And you can look at your life and you can say, look, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't picked up my gun and physically shot anybody. But what does Jesus tell us? He tells us, if you have hatred in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Say, oh, I've never had an illicit relationship with somebody that wasn't my spouse. I haven't ever engaged in an adulterous affair. But Jesus tells us again, if you've even thought about it, it's just as bad. It's just as guilty. What is the point of it? What am I trying to say? The point is very simple. All of us are guilty. There is no one who does good. There is no one without sin. All of us have violated the law of God in one form or fashion or another. And all of us are deserving of the sentence of death because of our transgression against God. Thanks be to God that He died in our place. But what do you say? What do you say in regard to this argument? Which one is the most important? Can we steal but not break the Sabbath? Can we commit adultery but not blaspheme the name of God? Can we do this but not that? Can I wear a garment made of cotton and polyester but I can't eat shellfish or whatever you want to say? Either way, Jesus answers, it's bound to be a wrong answer. There is no right way to get past this question. You can't say one is more important than the other. So now we've got Him right where we want Him. And notice my third point, which is Jesus' response. His response to all of this. Verses 37 to 40. He said to him, the great commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is the most important commandment. And the second one is just like a you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Totally unexpected response. Didn't see that one coming. Obviously, it's not one of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, so on and so forth. This isn't there. Instead of what Jesus does, instead of looking at the Ten Commandments, He looks at what's called the Hebrew Shema, the, the words that the people of Israel, and even to this day, Jewish people say, the first thing as they get out of bed. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4. And five says these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. 
said, like I said, by Jewish people, each and every morning as they get up and face a new day, this is the first words, the first thing that they utter out of their mouth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. They say these words out of devotion. They believe to God in their way. Really what Jesus does is something absolutely brilliant. Because with one little phrase, with one little word, He does away with any understanding of the service of God that sees it as concerned with the acquiring of merit or with an emphasis on liturgical concerns. In other words, He looks at them and He says, look, you're not going to be more special if you do one little word as opposed to another. It's not about rule keeping. It's not about commandment observe. And it's not about making sure you do something that is first and foremost and number one priority. It does not mean that all other commandments can be ignored and that all we have to do is love. No, the commandments of God are serious. They must be observed. But what Jesus is saying here is that the basis of keeping the commandments of God, the basis of living for God, is done on a basis of love. And without love, we really don't understand why we keep the law of God and why we live a certain way and why we obey the Scriptures. One way or another, all the commandments are expressions of God's love. Love is the thrust of them all. And it's only as we love that we can truly fulfill commandments. In other words, it's only as we love God that rules become more than just a legalistic endeavor. The relationship of all the Old Testament to the double love command shows us that there is a hierarchy of law that above all requires our heart. To be correct. And if you're not doing things without a correct and a pure and a loving heart before God, obedience to God degenerates into nothing more than mere legalism. You think of this not just in terms of our relationship with God, but think of it in terms of a, a marriage relationship. Oh, we can say we're faithful to our spouse and we do it out of a legalistic obligation, right? We're, we're afraid that she'll be mad and we'll get divorced and she'll take the kids and my money and, and my car and all this other stuff and hopefully she won't take my car, but whatever. Actually, it'd be better if she would because it's about to fall apart. But <laughs> And yes, there is a, a certain sense of legalism that's involved in that, but yet yeah, it's far better to love your wife and to be faithful to her out of a sense of love and devotion. I want to be faithful. I want to be true. I want to honor you. I want to love you. That's what makes the relationship so much different. And it's the same way with God. We can follow 613 laws of the Old Testament. Or we can look at God and say, I love you, Lord, more than anything else. And however you want me to live my life, whatever you want me to say and do, I will do it for you simply because I love you. So we're told what the great commandments are. Love God. Love your neighbor. Let's look at these first of all. Love God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. 
with all your soul, with all your mind, with all of your strength. We could go through them one by one and break them down. We know that Christians are to be thinking, we're to use our brains, okay? We're not mind-numb robots. We use our mind to the ability that God has given it. We use our strength. We, we do what we can wholeheartedly with all of our might. Okay, we're not lazy. We're not just complacent and content to sit around and do nothing. But the key word in this phrase is not, you know, heart, soul, mind, and strength. The key word is all. Look at how he says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind. Okay, all means all. Right, every part of me. Every part of my life, I am to be devoted to God 100% sold out to Him. Think of this in terms of tithing. Do I think a Christian is obligated to tithe? We as New Testament believers are... Excuse me there. Supposed to pay our tithes? No, I don't. It's not a requirement. You're not going to go to heaven if you... Pay your tithes and you're not going to go to hell if you don't. Okay, but before you run back there and get the check, you can because we've already taken it and deposited it at the bank. Well, we haven't, but <laughs> you can have your check back. Because you see, what God wants is not 10%. So if you're going to take your check, that's fine. But you've got to write another check and you have to give us all of your paycheck. Because what God wants is not 10%. God wants all. Of your finances. No, I'm not asking you to give us all your money and you to couch down on that pew you're sitting on and live here forever. Don't do that. I don't know how to take care of you and we don't have any food. I mean, we do. It's in the fridge. Who knows how old it is? So one day we'll clean it out. But, but think about that, okay? You make $100, you give 70 towards food, clothing, transportation, you give 10 and ties, you have $20 left. What does God want you to do with that $20? You say, what I want to do with it, I want to go get a new set of golf clubs. I want a new car. I want a new fishing rod. I want a boat. I want to... What does God want? Am I saying it's wrong to have a boat or a fishing rod or golf clubs or a new car? Of course not. Of course not. What I am saying though is this. When you give God everything, sometimes God may come to you and say, use those money to bless someone else, to help a missionary, to give to someone who is destitute, to a charity that's trying to uh, help in this virus, this pandemic that we're in. And so many times we sit there and we say to God, I've given you my 10%. That's all you get. It's all mine. And our devotion to God is nothing more than a legalistic, well, I got 10% I got a tax write-off, so I'm good to go. Take your time. You sleep eight hours. You work eight hours. What does God want you to do? With the other eight hours of the day, does He want you to come to church and pray and, and read your Bible and whatever else? Well, maybe He does for a day or two, but more than likely, God probably wants you to be with your family, your children, your grandchildren, loving them, sharing time with them. Maybe He wants you to visit someone who's lonely and lives alone and has no one there with them. 
Maybe He wants you to give to a charity or some other organization that's trying to serve others. You see, this is what loving God is. Giving Him the first and foremost and offering ourselves to Him completely unreservedly. Most often that means for myself it's loving Him. By being a good father and a good husband and being around my wife and my children. It's not just loving God, it's also loving God. Our neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. This comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. The two commands again are not Keep the Sabbath day and to count your steps and to use your pedometer on your iPhone. It's not to keep yourself away from killing someone else. Just love your God. Love your neighbor. Now, we know what neighbor means according to Jesus. This is a little bit different than what the Jewish people thought because they thought, well, my neighbor is my fellow Jew. Jesus says, no, your neighbor is actually your fellow human being. Jesus expanded it, didn't He? That's the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10. A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho in verse 30. He fell among robbers who stripped him and he beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And verse 33 of Luke 10 says, A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. And we know the story in verse 36. We're told which one of these three was a neighbor. The man said, that was the one who showed him mercy. You see, it's hard for us in our society to define what our neighbor is. Yes, a lot of times it is the person who owns the lot next door to you. Sometimes you live out in the country and you're, you know, especially out in Kansas where I come from, your next door neighbor might live five miles away from you. Because there's not that many people. But who is our neighbor? Our neighbor is simply those that we come into contact with and we see and we interact with, whether on a regular basis or just on a spur-of-the-moment basis. So I mentioned it earlier, or the early service, I should say, but many of you that shop down at Giant, if you've been down there, and I don't know, She's still there, still working. I guess I haven't seen her lately, but I don't go there a whole lot. But they are working for a time. Elise was a young lady, wore a hijab on her head. It's obviously a Muslim. She was your neighbor every time you went through her register. Did we treat her with love and compassion? I mean, as much as you can, I guess. You don't interact a whole lot sometimes with the cashier. We look down on her and despise her because those people don't have place in our community. What is she doing here? Go back to the... We could go on. Maybe it's an African-American that works there somewhere else. Are they a neighbor? Maybe it's someone who doesn't have as much money as we do and you can tell. 
Are they our neighbor? They are our neighbor. And we have an obligation to love them and to treat them as such. Not just the people at Giant that we interact with very sparingly. People we interact with on a daily basis at work. In our neighborhood. And for me, a lot of times in my own house. As I sit there and we can't go anywhere and we can't do anything, we're stuck in as a prisoner in our own house. And these four other people that live there sometimes drive me crazy. Or maybe I drive them crazy, I don't know. I can say that because they're not all here. They were at the early service. (laughs) Don't share this with them. Fact is, they are our neighbor. My sons are my neighbor. My wife is my neighbor. And I have to love her just as I would love myself why is that because these commands form the basis of the law and the prophets we're told our third sub point under there these commands form the basis this is what it's really all about this is what christianity is all about loving god and loving each other this sums it all up you don't have to go around and making sure like i said that you're going the appropriate number of steps you don't have to make sure that you're not wearing a cotton and a polyester shirt or you're not doing this or you're not doing that what you need to do is simply ask this question is what i am doing done out of a basis of love for god and for my fellow human being and if it is not probably doesn't need to be done Listen at these verses. See how pervasive this is. Matthew 7, verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Galatians 5, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James 2, 8, if you really fulfill. Royal law according to the Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Romans 13, 8-10, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. It's that simple. Love God. Love each other. So what's the significance for us? Last point, what's the significance? Jesus gives us these words. Back there, Anthony. John 13 says these words, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's the significance for us? What I am telling you this morning is this. You might be like I've done before in my life. You get up 
You think I'm going to love God. And so what I'm going to do is I'm really going to get serious about God. And, and I get up and I set my alarm for like 2.30 in the morning. And I'm going to get up and pray and really love God. And I get up at 2.30 and at 2.45 and fast asleep. Praying on my knees, right? Really love God. <laughs> See, we can't do this on our own. We can't love each other on our own. We're too different. I mean, you guys are normal and I'm whatever I am. The reason we can love God and love each other is because He first loved us. And He died on the cross for our sins. He gave His life on Calvary that we might have eternal life. And because... the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ and because I received the love of God gives me the ability and the power to love each other. See, we can't do this on our own. But we remember Jesus died for my sins and He gave His life for me and He loved me enough to die for me. When I see the love of God, it drives me to love Him back because He first loved us and it drives me to love you and others in my life. What I'm saying is this, you need to remember the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the Gospel. Yeah, you can't do it on your own because your spouse will drive you crazy. Your children drive you crazy. Your co-workers will drive you crazy. But when I remember that God loves me and He died for me, then I can love Him back and I can love you as well. So what would it be like if we as a church simply loved God loved each other. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I do confess that I struggle and I have a hard time loving the way that I should. God, I pray, though, that you would remind me of the good news of the gospel. You died for me. You gave your life for me. And because you did, I can love you in return. Lord, you have taken my heart of stone and you have put in my place a heart of flesh that causes me to love the way that you want me to. Help me to do that, I pray. Help us to love each other, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.